I'm Harry. I'm Nash. And this week, we're going all the way from the 5th through to the 11th of February. And first up, uh, we actually have something called The Bridge of Spies. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Um, I've heard of a Tom Hanks movie. Is that... Am um, I thinking in the right act- direction? Well, it's based on... It's based on the events that happened in 1962 on the 10th of February. So the Bridge of Spies is based off the Tom Hanks movie, Bridge of Spies. No, so this is life imitating art. Oh my goodness. Okay, all right. No, obviously the <laughs> other way around, but you, you know what I mean. I know what you mean. And what are you speaking about? This week, we're taking a look at Nelson Mandela's long walk to freedom. Because on February 11th, 1990, he is set free from prison in South Africa. Do people know who he is at this point? Do people know who he is at this point? Yeah, like you mean in, people in South Africa. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. in the world. Yeah, he's a, he's okay. kind of a big deal. Okay, cool. <laughs> in recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. So the bridge of spies. It is the bridge of spies that we're speaking about today. So picture this: you're in Russia. There's west. There's east. There's a bridge that connects the two. Okay. East and west. Russia. Germany. You're in Germany. (laughs) Russia is an important player in this game, but let's say there's a bridge. Okay. Right? Made of spies. Made Possibly in Russia, maybe in Germany. (laughs) Okay, I'll start again. Okay. So you're in Germany, which after World War II was split into West and East Germany. Not Russia. Germany. Okay, got it. But Russia controls one side, America controls the other. Of course, West Germany is controlled by the Americans and East by the Ruskins. Cool. And there's a bridge that connects them. Half of it is the East, half of it is the West. And this is a famous bridge. And that is because this is the place where the first ever spy exchange happens between Russia and the USA. Okay, so that would suggest that things weren't so great between Russia and the USA leading up to this point? No, of course not. It's the Cold War. <laughs> they hate each other. They're not mates even slightly. And yeah. there's been a lot of... They're not of... sharing emails. They're not sending stuff around. No, now they are. But back then they weren't. Yeah. They were not friends. Okay. Um, and what was happening, there was a lot of espionage. A lot of Russian spies going into America. A lot of American spies going into Germany and Russia. Mm. Um And so it got to a point where Russia and America, in a sign of, I guess, good faith in 1962, they said, let's trade spies. I'll give you one. You give us one. Done. We can be friends. That seems pretty fair to me. Yeah, okay. Um, At that point in time, in 1962, you'd think that that was a sign of good things to come. Uh, But then we realized that in 1965, the Cuban Missile Crisis happened. So to be honest... It was good at the time, but not great. Okay, so it's a sign of good faith, but it doesn't really amount to much to ease the tensions between these colossal superpowers. No. no. Okay. It's it's good for the people that are not getting killed, essentially, which is the spies. Okay, so who were these spies? That's a great question. Why would we even risk national security because of two spies? Who who were these guys? So these two spies were actually not the biggest of spies in their, their respective countries. Okay, so that we weren't talking like a James Bond 007 level spy. And Goldfinger. And Goldfinger. (laughs) (laughs) No, we weren't doing it, those two. We'll start with the Russian spy. Sure. His name was William August Fischer, also known as Rudolf Abel, also known as Emil R. Goldfuss. So this guy had multiple aliases. He was an international man of mystery. Very much well known. Very much, yes. Um, So in 1948, Fischer, being from Russia, he slips out of Russia and gets into a 
USA by going through Canada. So he's managed to okay. sneak his way overseas into Canada through to America. And that's where he starts his life as Emil R. Goldus. Okay, okay. Right, Emil So R- he's embedded within the United States doing some like nefarious acts, we can only assume. Yeah, sending was, information back to he the was a spy. Yeah, he was good okay. in, he was good cool. at espionage right. to put it quite frankly. Now, Emil, he uh, he becomes part of Brooklyn culture. He's an artiste. So what he does <laughs> is he does his artworks and in some of the pencil holders and and different containers, he slips secret uh, you know, messages, photos from America to send back to Soviet Russia. And all is going great. He's a phenomenally good spy. He doesn't give up any secrets, keeps him, himself cool. But then he meets. I guess if you want to have an alias, you know, a, a, a type of career that no one really cares about, no one's going to be paying attention to you. Being an artist is or not failing, a, bad, a failing <laughs> artist. Being a failing artist isn't a bad choice. And I'm not knocking artists. I'm saying that like you guys have a bad bad go of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like because <laughs> there's the select few that I guess make yeah, it. Yeah. Who rise to prominence? I mean, yeah. like Andy Warhol and Pablo. Vinci, that's it. Yeah. They're the only artists. <laughs> um, anyway, he's doing a great job of being a spy, but he meets this guy called Reno Hay Hannon. Right, he's another Soviet spy that is working in New York. Anyway, Reno is not good at his job. Okay. So suffice to say, when you're a spy, not good at your job, you get caught by the Americans. So he gets sure. caught, and after, so Reno gets caught. Reno gets caught. Okay. So he's not good at his job. He gets caught. Okay. And then he out. <laughs> so imagine him wearing the same hat and mustache <laughs> at every like rendezvous. Yeah. So man, this guy. What is he? There's yeah. something up about this guy. He looks like he's Russian. <laughs> I, what actually gave him away, though, was that um, he had a Russian flag that he taped to his body. So if people were confused, they would just see the Russian flag and know that he was a spy. Um, yeah, right. That seems... Yeah, it didn't happen like that. Anyway, <laughs> I'm going to stop doing shit jokes. But what happens is Reno tells the Americans about Goldfuss, who is Rudolf Abel, who is Fisher, okay. right? I don't know why he has so many names, but I guess that's part of being a spy. I'm not ASIO. I don't know how it works. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He rats out Goldfuss and then Abel, Rudolf Abel, who's Fisher, gets caught. Okay. They storm his apartment. Um, they find the secret messages he had. And then he goes to court because he's a convicted spy. Um, <laughs> Reno actually then changes sides so we forget about Reno. he's he's useless okay so the guy the first spy who walks across the bridge the russian spy he goes to america he meets up with this shitty other spy he gets caught defects and then our guy who's gonna be walking across the bridge he's stitched up in court is that yeah. right so far okay just yeah. want to make that clear yeah okay. a lot of he's and a lot of hims but you get the point okay rudolph abel he's just been caught by abel. the police okay he gets sent to court sure and in court he, he meets a lawyer called James B. Donovan. And James B. Donovan, turns out he's actually quite a good lawyer. He doesn't want to take the case. His wife tells him no. He doesn't want to do it, but he takes the case and he says, if I'm taking this case, I'm going to do as good as I can. And he single-handedly manages to convince the court that Rudolf Abel should be exchanged for another American spy. What was the other option? What was the other punishment that could have befallen Abel had he not been... Oh, prison. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, okay. just being locked up for the rest of his life. Yeah, sure. I mean, you'd, he'd probably you'd get, be like a foreign national locked up in prison. You'd probably get killed, right? actually. It would have been McCarthy in the era, which means that they were on the hunt for communists. So they might have been killed. I don't know if they killed communists. I don't know. America's crazy. So anything's, <laughs> anything's possible. But 
Anyway, Donovan, he negotiates, he even goes to Germany himself to negotiate the deal to trade Rudolf Abel. And he wants to trade him for the American spy, Gary Powers. So we're done with Rudolf Abel, aka Fisher, aka whatever his other names are. We're speaking about the American spy now. Gary Powers. Powers. Again, another like Chuck Yeager. <laughs> Got that American name. Is that a real, is his real name is Gary Powers? I don't or is know. That an alias? I think that's his real name. It sounds like a fake name. There's someone that's last name's Powers. <laughs> yeah, because of The Simpsons, Max, Max Powers. Powers. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he works, Gary Powers works for the CIA and okay. his U 2 spy plane gets shot down when flying over Soviet Union airspace. Now, you have the choice to either commit suicide, blow up the plane, and also take a cyanide pill and kill yourself. Yeah. Or crash and they discover all the american um documents plane and they interrogate you as well yeah and also the the torture that's likely to incur as well yeah so in 1960 his plane crashes he decides not to destruct and he actually gets quite a bit of flack from americans even on his return home about him not destructing himself but we're not going down that road because yeah he's important for other reasons um anyway he gets he gets i reckon the raw end of the deal because he's imprisoned in russia by the kgb you're comparing america cia to the kgb i mean probably (laughs) similar tactics i don't know i don't mess with that type of thing but arguably being stuck in a gulag isn't a good thing yeah no one's um desperate to go visit a gulag exactly so (laughs) donovan who's the lawyer for rudolph abel yeah he manages to strike a deal with the russians to trade gary powers for rudolph abel a nice switcheroo that would essentially um lead the way to a couple of other spy exchanges over the next couple of years before the cuban missile crisis happens i can see the significance for this act i mean Mm -hmm. on the surface it's a simple switcheroo (laughs) <laughs> I'll give you one, you give me yours. You yeah. Know? Um, but if it means that there's going to be further diplomatic channels that are opened and they can try and resolve some of their problems without dropping bombs on one another or engaging espionage, that seems great. But as you mentioned, it would take it quite a while for any of that to really happen. Didn't work so well. I think the best thing about the Bridge of Spies um, is that these people got to live. Mm. Essentially, if they weren't um, traded and exchanged between Russia and uh, America, they probably would have died in a prison somewhere. Sure. Okay. Not a great life. So James B. Donovan, he manages to broker the deal. He does. He's How does lawyer. it go down? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wish he I mean, could represent me. Yeah. So what happens is you're on this bridge. Imagine it's, it's snowing. It's cold. Yeah. Tom Hanks is around somewhere. Tom Hanks is holding, standing there with his Oscars being like, I just was in a movie with Meryl Streep. Look at me get another Oscar. Anyway, so they're standing there. <laughs> Apparently it's not very good. I don't know. Um, who knows? Um, so James B. Donovan and Rudolph Abel are on one side of the bridge mm-hmm. and then the Russians and Gary Powers are on the other side. Okay, cool. It's very tense. There's lights blaring from cars on either side to illuminate everyone. This is how it happens. Why'd they do it at night? Why couldn't they just do it in the day? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's just the movie. Maybe it happened during the day. spy stuff doesn't actually happen during the day. Well, I think also like you probably don't want everyone seeing you do it. I you suppose. Because like, they could have gotten assassinated. Like, Who knows what would have happened? This is a bit more, you know... Okay. A bit more chill. I guess it does radar. add to the, the gravity of the situation. If yeah. It's, if you can't really see what's going on. Yeah, there was also the Jaws music playing in the background as they were doing it. So you knew <laughs> something ominous was happening. Like, it was close. Or maybe it was The Shining. Either way. Okay. What happens is they literally walk from one end to the other. And that's, that's a swap. That's it. That's the whole thing. They just literally walk from one side to the other. They're free. Rudolf Abel goes back to Russia. He's yeah retires as a spy, but is known as a hero because he doesn't give up any of the any of the secrets um 
Yeah. He does die quite soon after, but we don't know enough detail about that to go into that Soviet files and whatnot. And mm-hmm. CIA actually clears powers of not destructing his airplane and he as well lives a happy life. As we were saying, a couple of years ago, Bridge of Spies came out with Tom Hanks and Mark Rylance, who actually won an Oscar mm. for his portrayal of Rudolf Abel, a.k.a. Fisher, a.k.a. whatever the hell his other so name was. So Mark won the... Yeah, oh. not Rudolf Abel. So, no, no, no. He I wasn't sure whether film. he meant Tom Hanks or, or Mark. No, Mark Rylance, of course. Tom Hanks was I don't know okay. who that is. <laughs> well, he won the Oscar for playing Rudolf Abel. You know Rudolf Abel, now you know Mark Rylance. There okay, you go. cool. Sorry. <laughs> See, my, my film degree came in real handy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible at all sorts of trivia. Yeah. The time for the healing of the wounds has come. Okay, so Harry, picture this. It's um, late afternoon, the sun's belting down, and outside a prison, this sort of old gentleman, looking kind of distinguished, wearing a brown suit, he's holding his wife's hand, he exits from the prison. He, lifts his fist up into the air and there's a crowd around. They just erupt. They just go nuts. They go crazy. Any ideas who this person might be or why an old guy's walking out of prison, putting his fist up in the air, getting such a rapturous reception? Obviously, I know. It's Nelson Mandela. Yeah, well, you have the uh, benefit of hindsight. (laughs) (laughs) I did tell you. (laughs) So he's leaving prison on this day in history. Obviously. February 11th. 1990. This is the day that Nelson Mandela, the public face of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, for the better part of, you know, 20, 30 years, he's released from prison. He was in prison for 27 years. That's a, that's a decent amount of time. You could write quite a few books in that time. Well, he only published one book, but uh, he also got a degree, so there's that as well. Yeah, I mean, some people take 27 years to do a degree, so good on him. <laughs> Looking at you, socialist alternative. Um, <laughs> bit of UNSW banter for you there. <laughs> anyway, um, so he's released from prison. Do you want to tell me why he was in prison? Yeah, so the question is, why was he in prison in the first place? Well, before Nelson Mandela actually became the first black president of South Africa... In 1994. Before he was imprisoned mm. for 27 years, Mandela was a political activist and he was the face of that struggle against apartheid. So the question then is, what is apartheid? So apartheid is this Afrikaans word that literally translates to separateness. Lovely. Yeah. Good job, South Africa. Yeah. So <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. But I guess that sort of tells you most of it. So it was a, a legally sanctioned system of racial segregation and, and oppression within South Africa, consciously designed to execute and consolidate the power for the white ruling minority. So they didn't get the memo from America that like slavery wasn't a thing. <laughs> they didn't quite well, get there. It wasn't slavery. It was more, there was like this complex system that operated on a social, political, and economic level with indentured servitude and all this horrible stuff. It's like all these essentially all these like like legal loopholes to do the most immoral stuff. Sounds That's like essentially it, apartheid. It, it sucks. It Not was, to trivialise it, but it, it yeah, sucks. Yeah, it was horrible. So, but it wasn't always the case in South Africa. In fact, it's interesting to think that for the longest time, you know, South Africa itself didn't actually exist. It wasn't a thing. In the same way that Australia wasn't a thing. Uh, the same okay, way yeah. that um, Canada wasn't a I thing. I think it's called colonisation. Exactly. I think you'll find Nash. Yeah, so, I mean, who's responsible for South Africa? It's the Dutch. 
Well, the Dutch were there. Yeah. But colonizing it, collectivizing those sort of regions, it's, the, it's a holdover from the British Empire. Oh, British people. <laughs> what have you done? Towards the end of the 19th century, the British are consolidating power yeah. in s- Southern Africa. And only 108 years ago, May 31st, 1910, that is when uh, you have the formation of the... Oh, it's quite recent. ...of South Africa, Very right? Recent. So the 19th century was pretty much about the Brits just like conquering and consolidating power in the region by conquering native tribes and subjugating the white boas, which were descendants of those Dutch... Who are the white boas? What's a so white the boas boa? were descendants of Dutch settlers who came in the mid-1600s. Right, okay. So um, so much hope for the Dutch. I really like them. <laughs> well, I mean, the Dutch are okay when they stay in Holland. <laughs> right, but when they're in South Africa, they were part of the apartheid. So, well, yeah. good, okay. Yeah. Glad we made that distinction. Thanks, Nash. <laughs> so, the Boer War, War was in 1899, and the Brits essentially wanted control over the diamonds and the gold that were in South Africa, taking it from the Boers. They won, and the Brits were like, oh, what do we do uh, with this new land we've got? They federated it uh, and making the Union of South Africa, right? Because it worked well for them in Canada and America. Yeah. And in Australia, sorry. Yeah. I mean, it didn't work so well in America. No. <laughs> well, does it, did it really work anywhere? I don't know. It didn't work anywhere, I Things are definitely better now than they ever were, I think. So there were all these yeah. disparate Dutch, British and Portuguese colonies within South Africa. And they came together to form the Union of South Africa. And right from the get-go, there were laws enacted to limit the uh, self-determination of the blacks within South Africa. So there was this thing called the South African Act, right? And it was designed to prevent black Africans from having the right to vote. So straight away, you're not really a citizen of the place in which you live because oh, you don't have the right to vote. familiar. It does sounds sound like familiar. uh might have even happened in Australia up until 1967. Yeah, it does sound yeah. very familiar. So we're going to fast forward to the end of the Second World War now. Okay. So in 1948, um, this is the time that sees the rise of the National Party within South Africa. They, they come to power. Okay. So, so these guys, they're motivated by... Um, I'm going to be saying this a lot, actually. They're motivated by consolidating power, okay? Oh, so they the want white more minority. power. Uh, it's so surprising that countries where, you know, white people are in power, they want more power. Well, I mean... Surprising. Real surprising. Yeah, I mean, they're a charming bunch. Like, they have, <laughs> yeah. um, they have these amazing slogans on their posters, like, the National Party, fight for your right to be white. Um, stuff what? like that. What? What is that? Well, I know. To me, to our sort of Western democratic liberal ears here in Australia, that sounds abhorrent. It but burns me. In some ways, you can sort of empathise with them. Okay. Intellectually. Okay. Intellectually, you can <laughs> empathise right. with them. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me how you empathise with the white apartheids. Intellectually, I empathise. In the sense that these guys were Boers, right? They'd been beaten by the British and they conceded their lands, which they had, you know, that was in living memory for some of them. And they were the minority within the society. Undeniably, they were the minority within the society. Which should in- even give them less of a say in a democracy sure but i mean like there was an existential threat to their existence within those lands right and that if you're a modern day boa living there right your ancestors came a couple hundred years that's technically where you live right that's your home yeah but okay there's you know, there's an ex- there's an existential threat to your existence there so Look, it's maybe not, it's I not good it doesn't work out well for to, anyone i understand what you're trying to rationalize but i just don't know if i agree 
with any of it. Yeah, no, look, I'm not saying I, I can't justify it, but I understand where it comes from. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, uh, <laughs> I understand. I get it. Okay. I mean, like, if... Say Please example, don't hate us. <laughs> by us, I mean Nash. <laughs> yeah, if he's case, a good person. In case anybody's wondering, I'm black, so I can't be racist. So here we uh, go. I'm not sure how that works. Okay, um, anyway, <laughs> going on. So, so they have this nationalist party. Yeah, the national party. These are the guys who build and execute apartheid. So apartheid is made up of 148 laws and um, there's a couple that are particularly insidious. Mm. So there's the population registration where black citizens have to register with the government. They have to carry an ID which determines where you live. So there's this thing called the Group Areas Act, right? And it means that blacks have to move to certain areas i think they're called um ghettos i think you'll find yeah well they were called because like, that's that's what they had in they 1930s. were deemed homelands and they were supposed to be given self-governance but it really just meant that they were out of the main economic hubs that's... of south africa they had no chance to be educated to have any sort of upward economic mobility um there was the why pres- do we not learn i just want to stop you here and yeah. just say why do we not learn well i mean oh, again God. it's that thing yeah. where like you think it's my back is up against the wall here. Either I make sure that I subjugate these people. It's like it's like it's us or them. It's that sort of tribalistic yeah. mentality. That's what it was. Yeah. And they had this other stuff where like they had the Immorality Act and the um, Reservation of Act. Separate Amenities Act. <sighs> these things were, which meant that you know it's it literally segregated blacks, whites. Oh, here's another thing as well. There's a difference between coloreds and mm. blacks. Okay. So in South Africa, in apartheid, you could be black, so like, you know, native African, white. If there was any interracial people, like me, (laughs) they'd be coloured. I'd be considered coloured in apartheid. Right. You're not purely black. And then the fourth category was Asians or Indians as well. Right. And they hated everyone except the whites. Uh, Well, well, yeah, I mean, like the, you know, the national party were there for the whites. Yeah, essentially. Good. Good. (laughs) What a lovely group of people. Yeah. So, I mean... Such a shame that they're no longer in power. Yeah. Devastating. Devastating. (laughs) So, the thing is, apartheid is like literally everything you could think of to undermine the potential prosperity of a group of people. Yeah. So, it comes into effect in 1948. That's the beginning of apartheid. At this point, Nelson Mandela... Remember him from the start of the story? The hopeful I, part where we're I, feeling good about ourselves? Yeah, before all of this shit. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, he is 30 years old and he's lived a pretty interesting life at this point. So he's effectively born into effectively royalty. His father was a Kosa chief. Okay. Right? Um, and he was the first person in his family to receive a formal education. He got kicked out of uni in 1940 uh, for boycotting his racist policies. He dodged an arranged marriage. He married his first wife. And crucially, he got involved with a group called the African National Congress by the time he was 30 years old. Okay. So, the African National Congress, or the ANC, they formed back in 1912 uh, in opposition to that first uh, horrible law I told you about that prevented blacks from voting. Yeah. Right? Now, in 52, they start deploying some of the non-violent civil disobedience tactics that Gandhi, as you recall from last well, he, week... He was, of course, in South Africa for quite a while. He was. This was uh, well before um, uh, Nelson Mandela really came onto the scene. Yeah. But yeah, it's employing some of those tactics that Gandhi was using there as well. Um, now, ultimately, those methods failed. <laughs> yeah, so much hope. I was about to say non-violence is my favourite type of violence, but... 
it yeah, failed. but they were ineffective. So mm. Mandela and other younger members from the ANC, they looked to violent, actually militant methods of fighting back against apartheid. Ooh, risky business. Yeah. So now their, their convictions were actually sort of justified when 67 black students were killed during a peaceful protest by the white government. That right? doesn't sound peaceful. That's the inverse of peaceful. Well, That's yeah, deadly. Exactly. So Mandela... He, he, he was sort of you know, justified in his, his convictions then to take up arms, right? And he essentially became a domestic terrorist within South Africa, fighting against apartheid. You don't hear this part of it, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, well, so the government responded by outlawing all anti-apartheid groups, arresting Mandela and locking him up for 27 years. It's pretty impressive, though, that he still had a following after 27 years. Obviously, he must have been a big deal before he went to prison. Yes. And then a bigger deal once he got out of prison. So it's not just the fact that he was in prison that made him the man who he was. Yeah, Obviously, that's course. a seminal thing. Like, it's the thing with lots of these revolutionary leaders that we've looked at throughout history. Good and bad. Good, Good and, and bad. bad. So from Mandela to Gandhi to Hitler to Stalin, all these guys have been in prison. It's been like a huge sort of inflection point in their careers. So guys, if as we said, uh, I think it was last week, if you want to be a dictator and or revolutionary, just head on to prison. It's a good deal. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, so Mandela's profile within and outside South Africa whilst he was imprisoned was due to the fact that the struggle still continued. Um, plus, there was also a considerable amount of pressure coming from outside of South Africa uh, from the international community to end apartheid. I mean, you'd as hope well. so. I know there's yeah. a lot of boycotts in in sport specifically. But yeah, in sport. Yeah, there the was con- condemnation from the Catholic Church. South Africa actually had to withdraw from the Commonwealth because other nations of the Commonwealth were like, "Yo, this is <laughs> you, this is you bad people." Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you've got a mounting pressure internally and externally to end apartheid, mm. right? And then, I'm going to use some very broad strokes here. We come to the point (laughs) where there's a change in government. A new president is elected, F.W. de Klerk, right? And from the longest time, he was not so much a huge fan of apartheid. And he didn't just think, okay, we need to patch this up here and there. He did a full reversal, a full revolution in the sense that he effectively put in place the stuff that would end apartheid. Oh, so he like lifted the ban on the ANC mm. and he called for a non-racist South Africa. And on February 11, 1990, he ordered for Mandela's release, which brings us to February 12th, 1990, which is our day in history. He gets released from prison. He walks free. And after that, apartheid ends. Sort of. It's, Effectively, yeah. Effectively, yeah. yeah. And it's that that is the moment where historians will look to and think this is essentially the end of apartheid mm. you know and the dawn of the new south africa and it's, it's in a sort of striking role of irony it's now the uh whites in south africa who f- probably face uh, the most oppression within that society now yeah who are really have their future in question wow complex society i'll tell you that much yeah All right, time for some fast facts coming at you. February 6th, 1952, Elizabeth becomes queen. This is huge. She is uh, our queen, God bless her. And she's the <laughs> longest reigning monarch as well. She's been yeah. in it for like, what, 65 five years. Yeah. Because she had a diamond jubilee. Yeah. No, yeah. there you go. Yeah. No, so, why do I know so much about a 
I guess a pal is <laughs> head figure. <laughs> well, I mean, the important thing about this date, February 6th, her becoming the queen, mm. there's a distinction to make. This isn't the day of her coronation. This was the day that her father, King George VI, that's the day that he died. It's a bit of a sad one, but yeah. also a happy one. Like, your dad dies really sad but also now you're the queen of england so it's like uh, maybe not such a bad thing yeah oh, i mean i've been watching netflix series the crown and it looks not to be all that it's cracked up to be so yeah i don't know i reckon the corgis are a real real handful real handful definitely so is prince philip <laughs> george that, that's uh, my mouse but I didn't, I didn't kill it george honest i found it there staying on this day in history 1937 of mice and men is published what a book what an absolute stellar book yeah so i'm just getting a bit sad even thinking about it i don't know if you've read it uh, uh only in high school only in high school <laughs> yeah i know obviously we all read it in high school but yeah man, it's that that was i think maybe the first novel i read where i actually cried it's yeah. so sad what a bromance though george and lenny <laughs> they were the original <laughs> jd and turk <laughs> you know <laughs> From Scrubs, sort of, <laughs> not really, not really. <laughs> um, so I started you, a long time ago. Okay. If, if you need a little refresher, Of Mice and Men was written by John Steinbeck, and it's this sort of depression era. Yeah, definitely Grapes of Wrath. Oh, love that book. Bit Juicy. dry. Get it? <laughs> Chick, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> but um, Of Mice and Men <laughs> follows yeah. Lenny and Carl. Not Lenny and Carl. Sorry, <laughs> that's The Simpsons. I think you mean George and Lenny. A product of my generation, George yeah, and well. Lenny. And um, yeah, just their struggles through being, you know, uh, laborers in the Depression and struck a lot of chords. Struck yeah. a lot of chords. Great book. If you haven't read it, read it. Go educate yourself because it is, it's one of the best. 100%. One, two, three, four. I need somebody. Not just anybody. And bring us. Oh, son of a bitch. And the last fast fact for the week. Say that three times. Not going to even try with peanut butter in my mouth. <laughs> it's the 7th of Feb, 1964. This is the day that the Beatles arrive in new york and it sort of begins the quote british invasion you know? it's uh i think it's called beetle mania beetle mania i think you'll find once beetle mania hit the u.s soil it just exploded for so the benefit you, of mr kite you know what i mean mr who mr kite it's, it's a song by the beatles oh well you can tell there's <laughs> oh my god who? do you know do you know who the beatles are <laughs> they're like the rolling stones but nothing like them <laughs> Don't ask me as listening to the Beatles. They're just not my thing. It's not my cup of tea. What do you mean not your thing? They're everyone's thing. No, they're really not. I have never met anyone except you now who doesn't like the Beatles. You know what's, you know what's horrible? The only Beatles song that I like oh. is Helter Skelter. I got really into it after our Manson episode two weeks ago. Because Charles Manson likes it. All oh, right. And on that note, we, we must end the episode because we've got a Manson supporter on our hands who likes Helter Skelter because of Charles Manson. No, it's just Haven't a cool song. Any of it's the just a cool song. entire beauty that is the Beatles. Anyway, that wraps up another week in history. Join us back here next week as we take you to a time before you were born. How do you not like the Beatles? They're not that good. <laughs> sure. This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. 
let's get real. Have you ever wondered why adults are so obsessed with Disney? I'm theme park journalist Carly Wiesel, and on my new podcast, Very Amusing, I'm discussing every story, secret, and shenanigan I know to bring you an inside look at what's really going on there. From secret spaces like Disneyland's private $15,000 dinner to surprising celebrity hot takes, we're covering all of your curiosities. Subscribe to Very Amusing with Carly Wiesel now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts.